0: To another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and we are sitting here in our Tom Tom Mahalase uh, recording studio overlooking the Golden Horn. And with me is.
1: Hi, uh, Elisabetta Benigni.
0: And today we are going to be recording a podcast with Soo Young Kim. Soo Young is an assistant professor at the Department of Comparative Literature at Cochin University. Uh, he's had quite a number of works he co-translated of Leah Celebi's uh, Seyahat with uh, Robert Dankoff, but today we're going to be talking about the topic of his most recent work, which came out in 2018, uh, and it's a book called The Last of an Age, The Making and Unmaking of a
2: 16th-Century Ottoman Poet. Thank you, Nir and Elisabetta. Uh, glad to be here.
0: Today we are going to be speaking about a topic that we often don't really discuss on the podcast, which is poetry, Ottoman poetry. A lot of you might have heard of divan shiri, that is court poetry, uh, or more basic forms of poetry. But this isn't really something that we tackle often as historians, as scholars of the Ottoman Empire or the Middle East. And part of it is quite hard to deal with. And this is why I've invited uh, Suyung to come on this podcast, because I think his book and his work is really important in explicating this world. And we are going to be talking about the focus of his book, which is the 16th century poet, Zati, who was quite famous in the beginning of the 16th century and then gets marginalized over time. So, Young, I wanted to start with this, almost this very basic question, hear me out here, which is, what makes for a good poet?
2: Uh, Nier, what makes for a good poet? Well, as you know, part of the problem of dealing with poetry is there's no critical literature proper in the sense that we're more familiar with in the early modern European context. You don't have necessarily in the 16th century, you don't have anthologies or you don't have tracks that uh, articulate what makes a good poet. Mm-hmm. What's at least clear, if we think about the production of biographical dictionaries or teskere, or to shuera literature in the, in the course of the 16th century, that it was particularly the use of sanat or rhetorical figures, whether you can handle them in a sort of refined manner that... Um, distinguish the poet. So, it's very technical. It's a technical measure about what makes a good poet, in particularly in the case of Turkish poets or poets uh, producing in Turkish, to be more accurate. The real issue at the beginning of the 16th century mm-hmm. was their ability to sort of indigenize or nativize the aruz with a quantitative metric system that they had inher- the Turkish composers had inherited, Arabic bavaya through Persian. Mm-hmm. And the use of particular rhetorical figures, things in English, would be more basically variations on punning, whether verbal or visual.
0: I know this is maybe for those that are not that familiar with the nature of poetry. What is a rhetorical device? What is a meter?
2: No, we're all familiar with rhetorical devices. I mean, everything from alliteration, um, technically metaphor and simile not considered sunat in the, in the traditional definition, at least in the Islamic poetic context. Mm-hmm. It's wordplay, what have you. It's right. adding it's adding semantic richness to words. Uh, these kinds of quantitative meter, unlike in, for English speakers out there, that English meters are qualitative. So the best example is di- diambic, you know, the to boldly shit. go right the split infinitive from Star Trek, which is which is native to English, go uh-uh, you know where quantitative is just fixed. It's um, there are certain stresses based on I'll put into list linguistic terms uh, consonant clusters with natural long vowels or what have you. So if you know Turkish, Turkish doesn't have natural long vowels. Mm-hmm. So one of the problems of adopting quantitative meters is how do you actually fit the short long feet with a language that has no natural long vowels so you know and then if and near you know arabic you know how turkish speakers shorten arabic long vowels like from instead of nadim it's Mm nadim what have you so how do you so there's a there's an oral quality to it but then so there's one that we forget that poetry is a, a spoken art and there's also um there's also a um, you know oral quality, but it's also meant to be. It's not simply. It's not. It's not everyday speech. Mm. I think there's a, sometimes there's a tendency in the field to identify, make a distinction between what we call divan Shiri as something that is not a vernacular, but that's a you know I would argue that's a that's a misunderstanding of how high poetic um, traditions actually evolve. It's meant to be a language of public discourse and one that's supposed to be elevated and refined. I mean, it's no different than like, giving speeches in the po- you know nowadays in the public sphere. So, mm.
0: right. This is also a, again. I just want to kind of pull this up for the listeners. You know, often when we think of poetry today, we have this kind of romanticist, uh, romantic sure. notion of poetry. Poetry's supposed to it, a good poem is supposed to make you feel something. It's supposed to elicit emotions. But here, their vision of what poetry is is. I mean, so much based around this linguistic world. Right? Yes,
2: I mean, so better poetry is supposed to elicit emotions, but it's not necessarily the, the aim or the end-all for the poetry. So uh, this idea that we tend to think of poetic practice as a practice that's supposed to be emotive, in the end. But in, in fact, if you look at, for example, the uh, development of the, um, the sonnet in the early modern European context, I'm going to put this in a very reductionist terms it was an exercise in rhyming poetry mm. that fits a particular meter. If you, read, if you read sonnets over and over again, they're not particularly interesting after a while. You can say the same thing about gazelles. They tend to be repetitive or what have you. It becomes a, it's, a, it's a technical skill in many ways.
0: So let's jump into the main topic of our conversation, which is uh, Zati. Who Can you just give us a snapshot of his life? Why is he important? Why did you decide
2: to focus on him? Well, he's interesting because uh, we assume that there are sort of uh, social and literary hierarchies that actually neatly converges when it comes to Ottoman culture. We tend to assume that Ottoman culture tends to be elite culture. He's probably one of the handful of most popular poets in the first half of the 16th century. And by popular, meaning that he, his poetry was reproduced in the form of parallels, responses, Nazira. He was a mentor to a number of younger poets, including Baki, who's the best known poet of the 16th century in the Ottoman context. Mm-hmm. But he also represents something interesting that he comes from a guild or esnaf background. So part of my interest is why is this poet who was not midrassah educated? As far as we know from the biographical literature, he didn't know Arabic. Mm -hmm. One of the biographers claimed that his Persian was okay. Uh, Decided to produce elevated poetry and and it fairly succeeded at least in the first half of his career. Mm.
0: So I mean, when you say he's an Esnaf, uh, he's from a guild, he, his job, if I remember correctly, he was a fortune teller.
2: Right. He ended up being a fortune teller once he was in Istanbul, but he came, you know, he came from Balakasir and he he came from an Esnaf background. And of course, the problem with the biographical literature is they're, they're very uh, selective in what they highlight or not. But mm-hmm. once he ended up in Istanbul, you know, he spent some time at the Vefa Tekke in what's now the old part of town. And then he learned how to become a good poet. He apparently had uh, natural talent, and sort of made his way through sort of the various poetic networks in the city and made a name for himself. And the best example we have of historical evidence is that from the gift registers that comes from the reign of Bayezid II, that he's among about one of 30 plus Turkish poets who are recorded to have regularly received remuneration uh, for poetry. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's, I mean, quite fascinating. So basically, he's a provincial guy, a worker, an artisan, comes into the capital, makes learns how to compose poetry and then all of a sudden is presenting poetry regularly to the ottoman sultan in the 15th uh, early 16th century right and he's getting rewarded for it quite handsomely
1: Uh, related to what you were telling us about his um, his life what we know about his life so how did he learn about how to do poetry how was his training and how was also if this like i was just wondering if this uh, fortune teller kind of occupation was related to this art of Poetry or not in some ways?
2: He became a fortune teller after he arrived in Istanbul, sort of circa 1500, after he lost the patronage of Bezit II or the court of Bezit II. The question of poetic training is a good one, something that I've been fixated on for years, uh, particularly uh, before... Ottoman urbanization properly took place in the course of the 16th century, for example. So, you know, Balikasir had a, had a few, they had a one major jami or um, congregational mosque and they had a medraseh. So there were people who produced poetry mm-hmm. uh, as a sort of, as a, a cultural marker. Why he decided to produce poetry? Why he thought it would actually be profitable? Um, who did he learn the basics of metrics, for example, or prosody? That's not clear. Mm-hmm. Except that you know, poetry was circulated around. If you think about what they call folk poets or mystic poets of the time period, where they produce poetry and meter, um, the best example, someone like Ashok Pasha from a cent, you know, cent- century before. So people were familiar. Now, what makes someone who made it decide to become a professional poet in many ways decide to say, okay, I have some talent, I have a good ear presumably, to produce poetry. I can't say for sure why, you know, what motivated him, except that there was, by the time he was in Istanbul, it's very clear that the court um, wanted to encourage and um, support poetry being produced in Turkish. Mm -hmm. And that's um, something that Nira and I have talked about with the Tupkapa Palace Book Library inventory, where it's clear that there was produced 1502 to 1503, that there are, there's not uh, a single divan or a collection of poems of any of the sort of poets we would expect in the first half of the 16th century or the latter half. So
0: who would, I mean, what do you mean by that? Who would, who should we expect?
2: So if you follow the narrative from that's already, um, which has become sort of uh, consolidated in the middle of the 16th century and particularly in particular by Ashik Çelebi and his test kit, uh, that, you know, so what we, what's basically taught in any kind of, um, if you have a chapter or a subchapter in Ottoman poetic production, you know, someone named Ahmed Pasha, who was a vizier under um, Mehmet the Conqueror, and he was the first real proper Ottoman poet, and there's someone like Nejati also particular, but for example, Ahmed Pasha's divan is not recorded in the palace library inventory, neither mm-hmm. is Nejati. There are a couple of um, divans of in Turkish, but they were palace functionaries. They weren't really just, dis- they're not considered good poets. So it's very clear that if you think of the, when the inventory was produced or 1502 to 1503 as sort of um, breaking point, a starting point, that something happens at the court where they decide that uh, it is a matter of prestige to support poetry. It's always been a matter of prestige. And we know that a, for the surviving register of inamat after your gifts from the court it starts mm-hmm. from 1503 onward so at least if we look at the historical record it's very clear that it, towards the end of his reign bayezid II decided that he would like to promote poetry in turkish so it
0: seems like what we're talking about here is really the creation of a canon?
2: There is an effort to create a corpus of Turkish poetry. Now, whether we can consider that a canon—I mean, I, I argue that the canon—the canon formation actually happens in the latter part right. of the 16th century. That um, you know, if you look at what's happening in the palace, there was no guarantee that Turkish was going to be regarded as the literary language in the empire when the position of the şanâmi at the court w- was producing first chronicles in Persian.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Persian was still the elite language of culture in the yeah, early I mean, 16th gonna, century.
2: Right. If we're going to talk about the Ottoman Empire or the Ottoman state at the beginning of the 16th century as part of the larger Persian world, then yes, Persian was considered, was the was the preferred vehicle for literary expression. I mean, why are they so interested in trying to build up Turkish in the in this period? People always look at the, the Timurid example as a basis for Ottoman cultural production. So, uh, in the case of in Herat under Sultan Hussein Baikra, particularly the Uh, the figure of Neva'i, what's clear is that at the end of the 15th century in Herat, there was poetry being produced what we'll call Turkic or Chagatai. Um, Whether the Ottomans were, in fact, uh, influenced directly that, okay, they're producing another sort of Turkic dynasty is producing poetry or encouraging poetry in in another vernacular. Sure, I mean, sure, I'm sure they, I don't know if they took as a direct uh, inspiration, but certainly, uh, when it comes to courtly cultural production, it's always an, it's always competitive, and it's a part of how do you increase your prestige mm-hmm. um, as a you know as an Islamic dynasty, what have you, and and of course it's been well documented when it comes to the visual arts, particularly by Guriel Olu, and onward. But of course, when it comes to poetry, it's a little different, or any kind of verbal art, because it's relatively cheap, as I would put it. Right, you don't need to have you don't need materials or expensive materials to produce things and when it comes to poetry and also music would fall into that that it allows for a wider social participation than you would have uh than you would have in the visual arts
0: so I just want to unpack this. What you're saying is that while the Ottomans created a sort of Ottoman idiom, an imperial Ottoman India of the visual arts in the, let's say, late 15th, early 16th century, here in poetry, it's not quite clear. It's not, it's more difficult to create an imperial idiom or they weren't interested in it. What are you trying to push here exactly?
2: I'll help you out in here. I mean, the part of the question is like there's this whole fixation on um, canonization, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. not just official visual production but also of knowledge production in the course of the 16th century, what, what, what becomes Ottoman or what we identify as Osmanlı at a certain point in time. The question is, where, does, where do the verbal arts fit into this? Because ultimately, it, um, Islamic cultures tend to privilege the verbal, mm-hmm. if anything, mm-hmm. um, based on, everyone knows the first first of the Quran, is to recite, and mm-hmm. it's been part of of rhetoric, and um, we can talk about that later. So, whether or not it actually coincides or follows the same trajectory as what what of what the current scholarship about canon formation in the Ottoman context, or in, in, in the cultural context. So it's easy to talk about cultural production from the palace, because we have the archival materials, we have, uh, it's something that the court was vested in. But how do we deal with poetry when we don't have the first record? And of course everything goes back to the period of Suleiman, but even that's slightly problematic that the first biographical dictionary by Sehi was produced in 1538. That's quite late. Mm. And if you actually do, a and of course there are, there are number studies in Turkish that do statistical breakdowns, but it's only about 200 plus poets, and half of them are not very good, or half of them disappear in the six in the in the succeeding biographical dictionaries. So there was obviously an interest in promoting poetry in Turkish, but even we would say by 154, you know, 1538, it's not clear to me that. Um, how widespread um, poetic production in Turkish actually was. And it's also, I mean, of course, then there's a second one by Latifi in 1546, and of course he does a redaction of it much later, but he also tends to choose all these uh, poets from Anatolia who also tend to be forgotten. I mean, they're Mm. quite mediocre poets, or at least from, if you look at hindsight from the end of the 16th and early 17th century, so there is production in turkish but whether or not uh it becomes it become the poets that are recorded become part of a curriculum of poets to be uh emulated as a separate matter so i think there's tendency to conflate corpus building versus creation of a canons
1: mm. and this is what's inside like the kurt. so we're speaking about a word that was turning around the kurt those so these poets were working inside the court were producing who was the like the cons- who are the consumers of the well that's the a good
2: f- question right so uh, there are who well, are the consumers the court was obviously one you know, locate, you know, one um, area of consumption. And obviously, if you got rewarded by the court, uh, you got paid quite generously. I mean, the amounts are like, you know, for for a casitas, anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 akche, which is actually a considerable sum. And if mm-hmm. you produce the navy, it's as much as 10,000 akche.
0: So like a year, over a year's salary of a, of a professor, for instance.
2: Yeah, I mean, for a mid-level madrasa professor, you would actually make more. Yeah. So, in fact, being a professional poet is profitable. You had three times during the year, the two Bairams and uh, Nevruz or Noruz, where you got to recite a casita, and you produced a few other casitas to sort of um, high officials, and it's actually quite profitable to be a poet. Uh, and that, and it gets, and at least the court actively patronized poetry until, um, until the end of uh, Ibrahim Pasha as Grand Vizier. Now, the problem becomes The court might be, the sultan or high officials might be consumers, but does that make them actual connoisseurs or critics of what is good poetry? a lot of things that are recorded, Mm -hmm. as you know, Elisabetta are casitas, and they are performative, and they're ceremonial and ritualized. So it's less about necessarily about content Mm -hmm. or about how great the poem is, but rather that someone, if I want a little bit of bashish from you, Elisabetta, I would invite (laughs) a casita, produce a casita, and those the social obligation is you give me something back in return, right?
0: Right, and a, as a courtier or as a yes, king or a vizier, <laughs> you're expected right. to hold these salons or these sessions in sure. which people recite you poetry and you give them right. uh, money, and that's what you do as a ruler. Right, so
2: it's more econ- it's more economic rather than necessarily mm-hmm. more literary critical. But obviously there were, <laughs> there were growing interests by... Broadly speaking, ulema, or people who would better understood as literati who wanted to be more critical in their assessments, we get that from, um, you know, Latifi, for example, is the first example of sort of having more critical judgments. And Walter Andrews has written about that. But it's clear that there are different tiers of poetic consumption and how it's consumed. So, Mm -hmm. the best example I can give you is, uh, you know, Zati at a certain point, particularly after, from the reign of uh, Selim I onwards, you know, his uh, courtly patronage was intermittent, not as big, not as consistent as Bayezid II, and he would produce gazelles for his fellow uh, Esnaf, a tradesman, and he had his fortune-telling shop was in Bayezid Maidana or Bayezid Square. It was an exchange in kind, so you write a gazelle about a particular um, apprentice of a particular trade, uh, and he would get he would get something. Which turns the best example I, I can give you something I teach and I and have written about is that he has this um, gazelle he produced for the end of uh, Ramadan or Ramazan, and it was probably written for a cook or an ash. and the whole the beginning metaphor is comp- uh, comparing the beloved to. Um, to white pilaf, <laughs> and and the lover as uh, saffron, mm-hmm. and how we go well together. Mm. And it's written in a very so it's clever, but it's not like it's not rhetorically sophisticated. So it mm-hmm. gives you a clear sense that we know through him in particular that he also had consumers who were of surprisingly people who are un, not educated as we would assume, mm-hmm. and we also know that he also ghost wrote poems for both men and women. That's also documented. Hmm where some, you know, and it's a well-known story that um, there's a full translation of the episode in uh, The Age of the Beloveds by Walter Andrews and Mehmet Kalpakla, that some servant would come from some noble lady and said, you know, please write a gazelle with this particular meter and, and rhyme. Mm-hmm. And he would do it for, for you know, for if he's lucky, for a gold coin, not for a few aksha or some gifts of like helva, for example, so... Mm-hmm. So, so what we don't have is a problem is any, when we talk about culture in the early modern period, and it's so the same in um, Europe, it tends to be elite culture, people who record things tend to be a very small social social circle, but that doesn't mean that the con- people who actually consumed and appreciated were elite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, and And it works with, you can, you can actually do it with Zati because he's well-documented and by one um, biographical dictionary by Ashok Chelebi in 1568, because he met him and he interviewed him. The biographical notice is almost like uh, interview style, but he doesn't do that with any, but that's the only poet we have, right? So the question is, does it change in the latter half of the 16th century? Mm -hmm. Does it Mm -hmm. become something different? Except that there's less interest on the part of the biographers who come after Ashok Chalabi from 1568 onward to uh, privilege or highlight poets who came from slightly different social. Mm -hmm. So on that note, let's take a quick break and then we'll jump back into it.
0: Welcome back. I'm Nir Shafir, and I'm sitting with Elizabeth Benigni and we're speaking to Soo Young Kim about poetry in the Ottoman Empire, uh, especially in the early 16th century. And we have been talking about uh, this one poet in particular, Zati, uh, who rose to the forefront of poetry in the early 16th century, but was marginalized over the 16th century. And so, Soo Young, can you maybe tell us the story of why that is? Why was he eventually kind of pushed out? of this pantheon of poets.
2: It becomes clear in the later biographical dictionaries, uh, particularly from um, what I would consider the most important biographical dictionary of the late 16th century is by Knollazade Hassan Chelebi produced around 1568. Much of it's based on Ashik uh, Chelebi's uh, notice on him, but what's very clear that all of a sudden, um, he's referred to being part of an older generation. So he's part of the Kodama. He's the first one to sort of mimic the language of the, of the basses, the distinction between the moderns and the ancients. Hmm. Oh, And I found, uh, so when I was first looking at, researching into Zati, I found it quite striking that he was only like a generation and a half removed. The poets that, whom he had mentored were still active. And actually, some of them were quite, uh, had a good reputation as poets. But he started mentioning that uh, it's a quote, uh, he calls his poetry "to turkane, too Turkish, hmm. meaning it's uncouth. In actual usage, and he attributes that to uh, indirectly that uh, it's because his knowledge in Persian Arabic was lacking. Hmm. And but he doesn't states it outright. But something's happening by the you know in what I would call the 15, late 1570s onwards when you have when I would call the the first the emergence of a proper Ottoman literati, mm-hmm. uh, sort of literate men who had a vested stake in articulating a particular kind of um, elevated Turkish poetry who identify themselves as Ottoman. The first example I know, and I'm sure someone out there will correct me, of the use of the term Osmanlius in poetry is by Baki in a, in a gazelle. Before then, you don't have poets identifying themselves as Osmanli in that kind of cultural hmm. context. But it gets reinforced by um, by Mustafa Ali in a sort of world.
1: Sorry, can I just? Can you? Can why don't you give some major centuries or dates?
0: So let's go back to this question of Baki. uh, Who? When was he?
2: So Baki died in 1600. He's usually Mm -hmm. compared as the Shakespeare of of uh, the Ottoman poetry. Baki uh, ended up being the kasasker, or the military chief military judge of Rumeli. He's um, someone who is who's canonical but he really emerged as a poet from the 1550s onwards. So when I talk about the emergence of a proper Ottoman liter- literati, they're really sort of um, younger men coming from the 1550s onwards who sort of make their mark in the 1570s onwards. And the uh, biographer I mentioned before, Kunula Hasan Chelebi comes from that same generation. So Ashok Chelebi, who I referred to, sort of did an interview style with Sati. His biographical dictionary is 1568, but he sort of in between, Um, so and then there's, and sort of the more, the most important, the one everyone's been well recorded and Cornel Fleischer's in the translation that everyone's quoted and I have as well, that by 1599, we have this uh, social critic and historian Mustafa Ali, he has a world history but it's a section on poets where he singles out Sati, now it's left incomplete, he doesn't have an entry on Baki, it really reads like an entry of Sati and Baki Part of it is that he wants, it's clear that he wants to correct the notion that Zati was a mentor to Baki, although Ashok Chalabi mentions it. Um, And he states in so many words that Baki couldn't have learned anything from Zati because Zati didn't know Arabic and Persian proper. And so you see the culmination of this sort of, as Nehra puts it, marginalization, wherein that's no longer about, they don't question his Turkish poetry or his use of sanat or particular rhetorical figures, that's already been recorded. What they emphasize that he doesn't have full command of not just Persian because he's recorded known Persian, but it goes back to Arabic mm. as the that's the fundamental basis for any kind of poetry. And of course, it makes sense by people like you know Hassan Chelebi and Mustafa Ali to make that argument because they were all majusor graduates and majusor trained. So all of a sudden, po- poetry is no longer it becomes like so there so they, there's a move to identify a, a certain kind of elevated poetry. That is a marker of a particular social group. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who produced the biographical dictionaries in the latter half of the 16th century and the beginning of the uh, 17th century.
0: So they basically wrote him out not based on the quality of his verse, but on the type of person or education that he right, had. Right,
2: right. Basically, was he was someone who, whom they could identify with. Or as I put it in, in the book, as anyone knows who's done a PhD at, a, at a, what we would deem an elite institution, we don't like to give credit to people... <laughs> who do good work, who didn't, you know, who just happens to not come from a, a top tier university or what have you, right? <laughs> it's a way to sort of undermine mm-hmm. someone's work by saying you're not one of us, yeah. right? So you build social networks and you know this, you're right? We can talk about graduate researchers in Istanbul and there's it's about a handful of schools <laughs> who come out here, but it's the same idea that education becomes very important as a, as a component of your poetic training. So it's not simply about maybe learning poetry because you had a natural gift. It's the idea that poets are made, right? You have to be trained to be a proper poet. And to do that, you need to know you need to know Arabic well first. And so what's clear is that Sati doesn't really disappear because um, he still appears in a, a, the first major anthology by De Faizi. In about 16, 1620, he's still recorded. He's just not, his notices get smaller and smaller. So by the time you get to the last of the sort of classical biographers, Riazi in 1609, he's just simply referred to as a poet of an older generation who trained some poets. Mm. There's no recognition of his connection to Baki. There's no, um, it's simply said that he might have been good. But he, has, but he represents an older generation or an ancient group of poets, and this sort of very uh, in a discourse that sort of is clearly referring to the Bassett discourse about the moderns and the ancients. That something new has happened, sort of at the latter half, sort of from the 1570s onwards to the beginning of the 17th. So the only thing I'll add is I think there's a you know I think there there are a lot of um, you know young researchers I know where we. Uh, requestioning certain assumptions we have about cultural production, particularly um, in the late 16th or, s- or the course of 16th century. But I would say that, you know, um, this idea of what is Ottoman, what constitutes proper practice, mm-hmm. it's, it's still an ongoing debate going on even in the 17th century. And it never really, dis- it doesn't really, I, mean, I would argue in sort of my next project that it really gets what we consider Ottoman as canonical at multiple Cultural levels really get fixed uh, in the mid 17th century. Hmm. That's when we really see the production of anthologies. And if you think about anthologies, as a way of, um, as a way of reinforcing a particular curriculum.
1: But do you see him as like a failed attempt to <laughs> create this uh, Ottoman cultural identity, or like a premature attempt?
2: No, I, for Sati. Yeah, I don't think it was a failed attempt. He produced poetry at a time when there was there was nothing necessarily just. Dis- Poetry did nothing, said so you have to follow certain rules to be an Ottoman poet. People just wanted, or if there are people interested in poetry in Turkish, there have always been people interested in poetry in Turkish from the Seljuk period onwards. Mm-hmm. The, the real question is when does poetry produced in Turkish get identified uh, with a particular kind of education, mm-hmm. a, educational background, and where it gets set back to? You know, uh, people always assume that it's you know um, Ottomans are you know the it's Persian they're worried about, but in fact, at least for the uh, the literati in the latter half of the 16th century, they go one step further, and it's really Arabic. And and in the book I in the end as a part of the epilogue, you know, I, I mentioned the whether this is also shaped by the fact that there is more competition from the Arabic-speaking parts of the Ottoman Empire towards the latter half of the 16th century, so that's a separate matter. And you know, I know people are working on. Uh, we assume just because you know, um, you know under the conquest under Selim um, that things were incorporated fairly quickly. I'm not sure about that. It's at least to me. If you think about the concern about Arabic knowledge, it has to be a reflection of something. Yeah. And I think it's, sure. I think there's, there's competition and people forget that half the empire or actually more than half was Arabic speaking. Yeah, sure. So at a certain point you have, if you're gonna try to set yourself apart culturally, if you were Turkish speakers and producing poetry, you have to deal with the fact that Arabic still pers- persists and will always persist as a prestige language, whether it's a religious, but also at the cultural level as well. And I think that's something I know near, dealing with that, but I think that's an issue that a lot of people have ignored because they're so focused on Persian at the expense of Arabic, but it's clear to me that Arabic becomes something that, you know, Ottoman literati, whose primary language is Turkish, they're quite concerned about in the the end of the 16th century.
0: Well, on that note, I think we'll wrap up. Uh, Thank you, So Young, for providing this this amazing glimpse at the world of 16th century Ottoman poetry about how a poet could become uh, famous and then less than a century afterwards uh, marginalized from the pages of uh, Ottoman poetic history and I think you've really shown us also the centrality of poetry to the political and social world uh, of Ottoman culture so uh, thank you again for coming on the show thank you for having me here and thank you Elizabeth
1: and thank you to you that's great
0: and uh, for those uh, listeners that would like to find out more check out our website where you can find a short bibliography with some extra sources and you can of course check out Sue Young's latest book uh, the Last of an Age: The Making and Unmaking of an Ottoman Poet, uh, released in 2018. And please join our Facebook group, follow our podcast on iTunes or whatever uh, podcast provider you would like. And until then, ciao. A good poem is supposed to make you feel something.